Well, good evening, everyone. We are going to be covering our last lecture for the for the semester in this COVID-19 craziness that we've been experiencing at University of St. Thomas. And, um, and it's really appropriate that we end it with the most important thing that we do as Catholic Christians, and that is the Mass. The Mass truly is heaven on earth. It is a, um, a, a sacrificial offering, it's a celebration, um, all of which the Father cannot refuse. It is a representation of what Christ did for us on Calvary, and it should be transforming. We are with the whole church present um, at this representation of what Christ did for us. Now in the Mass, there are two main movements. We, I think we've spoken of these before. We have the Liturgy of the Word, and we have the Liturgy of the Eucharist. Now, they're not separate, right? They're meant to be together, kind of like our body and our soul. They're integrally related. Um, there is both a proclamation and a communion that takes place here, right? Um, there is a word and a deed. And so, it, you know, it, it, it does matter what we do with what we receive. And that's why um, there are two main parts, right? Because we're body and soul. Um, we have to receive the word, but then we have to live the word. Um, and so the mass provides an opportunity for us to be transformed both in our minds and in our hearts. That's really what the mass is all about. There's a great gospel story which kind of describes these two main movements of the mass, and it's the road to Emmaus. It's when Jesus appears in his glorified body on the day of the resurrection, and he walks alongside two of his disciples who do not recognize him because he has been transformed. He is glorified. And he says to them, why are you so forlorn? What, what are you speaking about? And of course, they look at him incredulously and say, are you the only one in Jerusalem who has not heard the things that have happened? And then they tell him, you know, we thought he was the one. We thought Jesus was the one, and yet he was crucified. He's, he died. He's in the tomb. And yet two of our, our women folk have told us that he is, he is risen. We don't know what to make of this. And then Jesus, of course, opens up their minds to understand all that has happened in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, and when he's telling them of the things that have come before, of, of the scriptures that they are familiar with, as he explains to them the story of salvation history, which is what this whole course has been about, right? Their hearts begin to burn within them and they recognize the truth of what he is saying. And when they reach the place to which they have been walking, he appears to be going on and they say, please stay with us, dine with us. And so he goes inside with them. And it is in the breaking of the bread that they recognize who he is. And then he disappears. Of course, they were walking away from Jerusalem at this point and now they return to Jerusalem. Their hearts are transformed. But this, this road to, the, to Emmaus really opens up for us this idea that we need both the word 
of God, which is what Jesus was breaking open to them as they walked along the road to Emmaus. But we also need to see the whole Jesus. We need the breaking of the bread. We need the Eucharist. We need both because we are a body, soul, reality. And so the story of the road to Emmaus is a beautiful, really, summation of how we worship. Now, it's important to recognize that in the Mass, every part of the Mass is important. It, is, it has a symbol. It has a meaning. And that begins with the procession. The procession itself is a preparation for Mass. And it really, the procession of the priests, the altar servers, the lectors, um, the deacon maybe, all of those people in that procession really reflect your family as you prepare um, for Mass. As the domestic church prepares, um, so goes the procession, right? And so what is our preparation for Mass? Well, first of all, we should fast at least an hour before Mass. We should fast in order to receive worthily the Eucharist. We should have read the readings. We should know what is going to be preached upon and maybe have a sense of, of what that might be. We should have spent some time in prayer, asking the Lord to dispose us well for what we're about to receive. And so that procession that occurs in the church is, should be a reflection of, of that, that procession you have already made in your heart. You see, we're on a journey. We're a pilgrim people. You know, we are, we are making our way to our heavenly home. And that's what this life is all about. And so we are reminded that we're in need of constant conversion, constant formation. It doesn't end when we're confirmed. It's just beginning when we're confirmed. Remember, confirmation is the final sacrament of the sacraments of initiation, not of completion, but of initiation. Now we're, now we're fully members of God's church. We begin the mass with the sign of our faith, the sign of the cross. Um, and this, of course, reminds us of our baptism, of who we are as children of God. It reminds us of what God has done for us on the cross. And then after we do the sign of our faith that reminds us of who we are, we recognize, too, that we're sinners. And so the penitential rite is proclaimed by the priest. And he asks us to call to mind our sins. And this is really when we should be calling to mind our sins, right? We shouldn't be calling to mind our grocery list or, you know, the donut we're going to have after mass. Um, but we should be calling to mind our sins. You know, wh where have I fallen short this past week? Where, where have I done well? And then we ask God for mercy and we say, Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. And then right after the penitential rite in which we ask God for forgiveness, we, we sing the Gloria if it's not a penitential season. And the Gloria is really a reminder of all that God's done for us. Glory to God in the highest and peace to his people on earth. And so we're praising God. We're adoring him. We're giving his, him right praise in the Mass. All of these things are making us ready for what we're about to hear and what we're about to receive. Now, what about the priest? You know, the garments of the priest really have meaning. And, and this is helpful, I think, for us to really ponder. First of all, the priest is dressed in all these kinds of regality, if you will. Um, he looks royal. He looks, 
he looks pomp and circumstance. Well, that's done for a reason because actually it should cover really the identity of the priest as, as his, in his manhood because he really is walking in the person of Christ. And so the garments are truly a covering so that we can perceive Christ who is really and truly in the priest. Now, the priest has a couple of different garments on, and that's why I think sometimes the church is so cold, <laughs> because the priests have a lot of clothes on. And first and foremost, they, they, their, their um, undergarment is an alb, and this is just that white kind of single, um, single piece of fabric that they put over their head, and, um, and it's white. And that stands for purity, purity of heart reminds them of their baptism, that they have been made white in the blood of the lamb. Then there's a cincture or a cord, which is tied around the alb. And this is a cord that represents chastity, their promises to be chaste before the Lord, that the Lord is first in their lives. Then there's a stole that the priest wears, kind of looks like a scarf, um, that's long and it goes around their neck and down their front. The stole represents the sacred power given to them by Christ. Oftentimes this is all that a priest will have on when he's performing the sacrament of confession. Um, but, it, but it represents a sacred power given by Christ. And then the chasuble is that beautiful garment that goes over everything else and usually has on a distinct color based on the time of the year um, that is being celebrated. So during Lent, it's usually a purple garment. During Christmas and Easter, we have white and gold. Um, and as the, as the priest is getting ready, he, he prays. He, there's certain prayers he should be praying as he vests. And, and this is important. It's important to remember because a lot of times people want to run into the sacristy and like ask father to like hear their confession before mass or something. And this really is a time of preparation for the priest as well. And so we need to really be um, kind of attentive to that. I mean, there's some, there's some churches that have confession before uh, mass and that's fine, but you know, to, to interrupt that opportunity for the priest to pray right before, um, church is, is really not, um, not very charitable, um, to our priests. So he prays as he vests, just as we should pray as we prepare to worship. So, we're still in the liturgy of the word, right? So the priest has processed in with all the other folks. Then he goes and kisses the altar. Why does he do that? He kisses the altar because it represents the body of Christ. And so it is, the altar is both um, a representation of, of the body of Christ and the sacrifice which Christ made for us. What a beautiful um, correlation. Then we enter into the liturgy of the word. And usually the first reading in the liturgy of the word is from the Old Testament. Because remember, we believe in both, both of the you know, dimensions of the Bible, the Old Testament as well as the, the New Testament. Because the Old Testament prepares us for what is given. The New Testament is a fulfillment of what has come before, right? So the first reading is a reading from the Old Testament. And, and oftentimes, well, all the time actually, it connects somehow to the gospel, now, the second reading um, is usually from one of the Catholic epistles, the letters, um, St. Paul's um, letters, 
Um, and, and it sometimes has nothing to do with the first reading or the gospel, but, but sometimes there's some, some connections that can be made and are oftentimes done very well by our priests. The first readings from the Old Testament, second readings from the New Testament, and in between those is the responsorial psalm, and that's always from the Old Testament. And it's usually from one of the psalms that were written by David, um, and a beautiful, beautiful um, way to ponder what God has done for us. Um, beautiful. And then finally is the gospel. Now in the first and second readings, we're seated. We're in a, we're in a position of, of reception, receptivity, um, and we should be listening intently to the readings that we have already prayed. The gospel we stand for. Why do we stand for the gospel? Well, the gospel really reflects directly on the life of Jesus Christ told by the ones um, who traveled with him except for Luke. Luke did not travel with the Lord. Um, but we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Um, and these, these um, gospels are read according to their cycle, cycle A, cycle B, and cycle C. Um, and so in the Easter season, we always hear the readings from St. John. So we're he hearing St. John's readings now as we are in those 50 days um, of Easter. The gospel is the focus of the Mass because it is about Christ, right? Um, not that the other readings aren't about Jesus, um, but directly the gospels are about Christ. That's why we stand. That's why we sing Alleluia. We are praising God. We are, we are so happy for all that he has done for us. And we are attentively standing as his word is proclaimed. After the proclamation of the gospel, we are seated and the the priest or the deacon is called to give a homily that focuses on the gospel, to unpack the gospel for us, to tell us what meaning it has in the person of Jesus Christ, how it is connected with the teachings of the church, and how it calls us to live out in our daily lives um, the life and love of Jesus. After the homily, we stand and we profess our faith. That's the creed. We have received God's word, and now we are going to stand and recite together our common belief. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth, and we, we go through the creed and we profess it. And we should really be, I always read the creed when I'm, when I'm professing it so that I can take it in more deeply um, and read those words and ponder them. What am I saying here? Um, so those, the creed is really a general statement of our faith. Then after the creed, we, we pray for one another. We pray for the dead. We pray for the Pope. We pray for teachers. We pray for the sick. We pray for those who have gone before us. Um, and it's a beautiful way for us to reflect um, upon all the things that um, we need and we desire. And we place them before our Heavenly Father. After the prayers of the faithful, we enter into the liturgy of the Eucharist. And the liturgy of the Eucharist begins with an offertory, right? Um, we offer all that we are and all that we have. Um, the altar is prepared. The gifts are brought forward. We bring forward water, wine. Um, we bring forward bread and we bring forward our money. Everything that we are, everything that we have, our first fr fruits, right? Um, and so these are all brought forward. And remember, these are an offering of ourselves, of our work, in our money, and in our, um, 
our water and, and um, bread and wine. These are all things that have come from the work of our hands um, and our money as well. So what does the water and the wine signify? You'll see when the, the priest is, is preparing the gifts, he, he puts the wine in a chalice and then he adds a little bit of water in that, right? And so that's just a reminder, again, of um, the divinity and the humanity um, of Jesus, um, that all that he is um, was offered back to the Father. And we, we hear the prayer, the prayer of the priest. He says, by the mystery of this water and wine, may we come to share in the divinity of Christ who humbled himself to share in our humanity. And then the priest washes his hands and he, he prays, wash me from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Um, again, the priest recognizes his unworthiness, um, but he also recognizes the authority and the power that's given to, given to him by Christ to act in his person. So what is the liturgy of the Eucharist? The liturgy of the Eucharist is a prayer of thanksgiving, and it's a dialogue. That's why we, we respond back. The, the priest says, the Lord be with you, and we say, and with your spirit. He says, lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. Um, and so this dialogue is something that we're called um, to really enter deeply into and to profess um, boldly. We, we pray the prayer of that, that God is holy. Holy, 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 Lord God of hosts, heaven and earth are full of your glory. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The whole church is praying with thanksgiving and glory to God. That's really what the liturgy of the Eucharist um, prepares us for. The Eucharistic prayer is the heart and the summit of the Mass. There are four main Eucharistic prayers. Um, there's, um, and, and they're prayed, um, the, the priest can choose the Eucharistic prayer that he would like to pray. Um, sometimes there's one that's mandated um, by the liturgical season or a particular day, a memorial that's being offered up. Um, but for the most part, um, the priest can choose their Eucharistic prayer. So we're, we're making thanksgiving, we're making acclamation um, to the Lord. And then there comes a point which is called the epiclesis. And this is really the, the highlight of the Mass because this is when the priest is calling down the Holy Spirit upon the gifts to make them holy. And the institution narrative is a narrative in which the priest no longer uses his own person to speak of this. He speaks of it as if he is in the person of Christ. This is my body. Of course, this is not the priest's body. It's Christ's body. So he's speaking in the person of Christ. This is my body given up for you. And so this institution narrative is when Christ is, is making this transformation possible in that moment. And then he says, do this in remembrance of me, because that's what Christ asked us to do at the Last Supper. And so... This Eucharist is an offering, right? It's an offering, a representation of the one sacrifice that was made for us on Calvary 2000 years. It makes it present in this moment. Then you hear the priests make all kinds of intercessions, right? Intercessions based on, you know, for our Pope Francis, for our Cardinal, for our priests, for, for all the men and women of God, for the different saints. And so these intercessory prayers um, are being cried out. And then we have the doxology. And this is um, when the priest um, really proclaims, um, you know, 
for the glory and honor is yours now and forever. And there's a major elevation of the chalice and the host and the great amen um, is proclaimed. For thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory now and forever. This is the major elevation of the host of um, the chalice, which have now become the body and blood of Christ. And we all proclaim amen. All of us participate in this one sacrifice of Christ. Then we pray the Lord's Prayer, which of course is a summary of the gospel as we learned last time. It's Christ's prayer. It's the one that he gave to us and it asks for what is about to be received. Give us this day our daily bread. And then we do the sign of peace. This is what Christ came to give us. Peace. Remember, he, every time he entered into the room after the resurrection, peace be with you, he would say. Peace I leave with you. Peace I give, give to you. And so we we participate then in a sign of peace with one another. We shouldn't be approaching the altar if we're not at peace with God and with our brother. And then we sing the Lamb of God because Jesus is the Lamb, Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Have mercy on us. Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Have mercy on us. So it's beautiful. It's a, it's a reclamation of um, everything that God has done for us, who he is, and what he is giving us. And then the final prayer that we pray before we receive the Eucharist as a community of faith is the same prayer that the centurion prayed. Lord, I am not worthy that you should enter under my roof, but only say the word and my soul shall be healed. And then we receive communion. And what we're doing when we receive communion is we're not taking communion, we're receiving it. That's why we don't take the host we receive the host in, a, as a, in our hands as a throne or in our, in our mouth with our tongue out. We receive the Lord. We don't take the Lord. It, it re represents that we're now in communion with him and one another. It represents that we have one faith. So when we say amen to this is the body of Christ, this is the blood of Christ, when we say amen to that, we're saying amen to everything that the church teaches and believes. This reception of communion um, is a great blessing. We should be prepared for it. We should be in a state of grace, which means we should not have any serious sin on our hearts. Our venial sins are forgiven in the penitential rite um, if we call them to mind. Um, and so we should be in a state of grace. If, if we weren't in a state of grace, we shouldn't receive communion if we're in, in mortal sin. Um, we should go to confession before we receive communion if we're in mortal sin or a serious sin. Um, and so that's the preparation to be, be in a state of grace. Um, and then finally, the dishes need to be done. And so that's what the priest oftentimes will do or um, a sacristan who is prepared to do that. Um, an acolyte who is um, trained to, um, to do the dishes, to clean the chalice and the, and the dish that's used for the body and blood of our Lord. These are actually um, disposed of in a very particular way. All of the remnants of Holy Communion should be consumed by the priest or the Eucharistic ministers. Um, but then if there's any remnant, um, these dishes are done very carefully and they are, the remains are poured down a particular type of sink, which is, um, goes to holy ground. It doesn't go into the sewerage system. And so again, we treat those remnants of Christ's body and blood exactly as we believe them to be sacred. 
And then finally, we are sent. We are sent to love and serve the Lord. And so the Mass is a preparation for the rest of our week. And so now we've received God's Word. We've received His body and blood. And now we have the power and the love um, to love and serve the Lord. We're being sent. So it's not an ending, but it's a beginning of our mission. And so it's critical that we prepare in the Mass, we prepare for the Mass, that we participate in the Mass, and then we live out the power that the Mass has given us. Amen.